Welcome to The Working Therapist with Hayden Bolick, a podcast designed to help you grow more, do more, and be more as a therapist. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. We're glad you've joined us for today's podcast. So here's your host, Hayden Bolick. Welcome to this episode of The Working Therapist. I'm Hayden Bullock, your host with Kirsty Miles today, and we are talking about what happens when you're stuck in therapy and how to get unstuck. So this topic comes up here at PDT a decent amount for myself as I work with therapists. And, you know, a lot of times I'll hear from people and they'll say, gosh, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do next. Like in therapy, they're in a speech therapy session. They're like, I'm stuck. I just don't know where, where do I go next with this child? In fact, this past week, I did a lot of this situation with various scenarios. So you hear the same thing too, right, Kirsty? I do. And you know, it did. It happened a couple of times this week and it might be uh, stuck in therapy or it might be they're just not making progress. I'm stuck. Why not? Yes. And so there's various scenarios and things to do as a result. And so Kirsty and I, as we were planning, thought, hey, why don't we talk about how to get unstuck in a therapy session? What does it mean to be stuck? And therapy. I think it can mean a couple of things of what has happened in the past couple of weeks, just of things that I've run into is maybe a therapist has created a goal plan and they're trying to make progress towards those goals, except they're missing maybe a couple of key components to take some mini steps in that direction. So they're sometimes trying to leap ahead and miss the underlying impairment that really needs to be addressed before you can advance to the next goal. So when that happens, you get stuck. I can't get this child into sitting or I'm working on this goal with reaching, except I don't know how to put them. I don't know where to sit them. I don't know what position they should be in which is a prime reason why this particular child that I'm thinking of should be a co-treatment, but um, <laughs> just because PT will come in and do the positioning and then <laughs> OT can do reaching. Mm-hmm. But in that example, you get stuck in the middle of the session because you're missing the underlying impairment or you're not sure what strategies to address You might recognize the impairment, but you just haven't had enough experience and exposure with that diagnosis or population or impairment to know what's going to work to alleviate that so that you can work on your next goal. Exactly. So basically the definition of stuck is not making progress, not sure how to write your next goal plan, not sure what goals to write next, not sure how to help the child achieve the goal, how to help the child achieve progress is really the definition of stuck. No progress being made, right? No progress. Or where do I start? Yeah. Because you got the goal. They came in for the evaluation. You developed a pretty good goal plan because you had the parents' input. And we talk about needing the parents' input because where do they want to see their child? Where do they want to go? So you got the goals. You know where you're going. But how do you get there? Before we get into the really the heart of this thing, I think it's important to pause and say for a second, this is something that Kirstie and I have talked about in multiple, multiple podcasts. It's something that sort of underlies really all of my therapy as, you know, hey, the finish line. You know, so I think if you're stuck, it's a good thing to kind of be stuck in some ways because it means you are thinking, I got to move forward with this child. It's not like you're just checking the box in therapy and like, okay, I'm just going to show up and we're just going to do something and throw some flashcards at this child. And I really don't care if they make progress or not. So if you're stuck, it means I understand I want this child to move forward. The goal of this whole situation is to discharge this kiddo. And so I'm stuck, but it's so I'm impeding my being able to move forward and get this child to advance, which is a kind of, if you think about it, a good problem to have because it means you are going in the right direction, you know? Mm-hmm. 
So I just wanted to point that out because it's sort of the heart of what we do. We are doer kind of people. We're trying to do stuff to help the kiddo move forward and we're stuck. We can't do it. So you're stuck. Now we know the definition of it. No progress is being made. Good for you because you know you want progress to be made. So the first thing is I take a deep breath. I step back. You know, I try to put myself into an objective position. I say a lot of times that you can't see the forest for the trees. So I try to get out of the forest so I can see the trees. But I try to take a step back sometimes literally or figuratively. And I think for a therapist who's right in the middle of it and working daily or you know weekly with a child, you've got to sort of remove yourself a little bit and sort of, that's what I mean by take a step back. But I almost literally move my body like back away from the table. I have to move backwards a little bit. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got in graduate school through our program was regardless of the patient, whether they're adult patients, whether they're children, pediatric population, they are coming to you for help. You're the specialist in this. So they're looking to you for guidance and they're looking for you to be the one that knows. And so their guidance to us was don't let the parent or don't let the patient know that you don't know. Mm. And it's okay to not know what to do, but you have to find the answer. And that doesn't mean you have to go read a book. That doesn't mean you have to go Google it online. That means you have to ask for help. Yeah. Because ultimately, it's not about you. It's not about your reputation. It's not about you being afraid to say you don't know. It's about that patient getting better. So you have to kind of set that pride aside for a minute (laughs) Mm -hmm. because sometimes you get caught up in what you're doing. And like you said, that pause, that step back, they kind of go hand in hand. So you have to be able to set aside some of that pride and be like, I need some help. Mm -hmm. You do. You have to ask for help. So whatever that means for you, basically what you're doing to ask for help is you've taken a step back and looked and be like, okay, I don't know how to help this child move forward. So I'm going to ask for help. Very rarely do I find my answers for help online by Googling or YouTubing. And I understand we live in a Google YouTube kind of world, but very rarely do I find my therapy answers from Pinterest or Google or a YouTube video. I don't know that I ever have, you know? You might find like a good strategy or an, oh, I could add that. But for the diversity of patients that we in particular see at Pediatric Developmental Therapy, you're not going to open a book and be like, oh, there it is right there. (laughs) It's just not going to happen. Our caseload is so diverse and so unique. And so, yes, I agree. Pause, set your pride aside and Hey, I need help. So the first thing to do is in that process of getting help. Well, the first place I go to is what can the child do and what can't the child do? You know, where are the positives? All right. And then how do those positives that they can do match up with developmentally where they are? You know, you're dealing with different children with different levels of function. So where does what they can do match with what they should be doing and with the diagnosis and the prognosis? How do all those things fit together? But basically, what can they do and what can't they do is really the first place I go to right after I take a sort of step back and I sort of do an inventory. This is what they can do, what they can't do. And if that means for you making a positive and a negative list on a piece of paper, you know, do what you got to do. If you're a visual learner, paint a picture, whatever you got to do for yourself. But I definitely make a list of can and can'ts. And I think too, a lot of times we have the parent back there for the session um, and it's okay to talk it out. It's okay to be asking the parent questions all along the way. We've talked about this in other podcasts too. You do the initial evaluation, you wrote a goal plan, but there's no way that you were able to gather every single little bit of information during that first 45 to 60 minutes. You're going to constantly be pulling and learning more about this patient every single time they come in. And that just adds to, you know, where you're going and what you're able to do. So I think that it's important to keep asking the questions because sometimes something comes up and all of a sudden that lights the light bulb and you're like, oh gosh, (laughs) 
right. you know, and it could be something really simple because we say that about home programs too, but that's a whole nother thing about getting involved in their daily life. But in order to do that, you have to ask the questions. So it's okay to have the parent in there and be asking questions about the patient and what they can and can't do because you only got a little snippet during that eval, enough to get authorization, enough to get that plan going. But I mean, we could be there all day and night asking questions for an evaluation. (laughs) So I think that that's really important too. And I think, especially for a child that you've been seeing for a little while in therapy, I think it's a good thing to ask the parent again and have the parent involved. That's an always. But to sort of when you're doing that assessment of what they can and can't do again, you want to go back and ask the parent, say yeah, I evaluated the child three months ago. Well, now what they can and can't do and how it relates to what's happening in the classroom at the school or whatever has changed. So for this one little fellow that I'm thinking of in particular, we worked with this week, the classroom has changed. So they were in a different classroom at school when we did the initial eval about three months ago and their classroom has changed, which is better for the child. And then what they can do and how they do it at the house is different because they have made progress in the past three months, you know? So they have made progress and so they have changed. So it sort of affects my skill inventory. Okay, so now in the process of, so you agree with me then, right? Can and can't do list of some sort. You paused, you have a can and can't do list, and you're asking questions. Yes, of the various people that are involved in the child's continuum of care. So that usually will mean also if they're coming in for OTPT and speech, as a speech therapist, I'm going to go find the OT and PT that I work with to be like, okay, what's little Johnny doing for you? What's little Johnny doing for you? This is where you're asking for help too. You're collaborating with other disciplines. You need input from them. You're getting help. Yeah, you definitely are because you're getting more information that's going to help you. Exactly. So then after you do the list and you're asking other people, then what I tend to do is I go back to the basics, which Kirsty, I've talked about this a bunch of times before. That's exactly where I was going next too. Now just go back to your basics. Basics. Yes. So for as a speech therapist, one of the questions I always ask myself, how do they tell you what they want? You know, I mean, isn't that kind of the heart of what a speech therapist does? I got to tell you, I want something, right? So how do they communicate to you what they want? And I know that's not the same question for an OT or PT, but for speech, that's my basic question. How do they tell you what they want? So that answers my Arctic, my fluency, my language, all of the things go back to that one thing. Not if I'm doing feeding, but other stuff. As a motor therapist, if I have to go back to basics, I go back to motor theory, and how motor planning comes about. And I also go back to, are we having difficulty moving against gravity? Okay, let me take gravity away. Let me put them in gravity minimized positions to do work to see what I get out of it. So again, I mean, same as what you're doing with speech, I'm going back to basics. I'm going back to motor learning and I'm going back to, let's get, gravity's hard. It's hard to work against gravity. I got to hold my body up all day and now you're asking me to do stuff with it. (laughs) So let's take that away and see what the child can do now. So what I said before about a speech therapist, the question I ask is how do you communicate what you want? So for a child who's already speaking in words and phrases, this is way too basic, but you got to frame it according to where the child currently is, you know? So how do you ask for what you want? Well, the way that I'm going to think about that is going to differ based on where the child is and their progression, you know? So for example, one little fellow I was working with this week, he's very echolalic, very echolalic. He imitates everything. So a lot of times he'll say, do you want the pig? Meaning he wants the pig. 
So he requests what he wants by he's using a phrase, but he just does it in echolalic things that he's heard, just phrases he's using all over again. So for him, this is the first question I ask. So how does he ask for what he wants? And he basically repeats things he's heard to tell you what he wants. So in that situation, I said, yes, I do want the pig. And I'm kind of theatrical with this fella because he's also an under responder. I needed to kind of get in his world and help him enter my world because he's kind of in his own little world. And so I said, yes, I do want the pig. And that completely completely threw this little boy off and he was like well no 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 because I was wanting that pig I'm like no yes I do want the pig thank you and then I did whatever the pig I think it was one of those pig poppers so I popped it and then I said do you want the pig so tell me and so then I was able to kind of give a model but sort of delay the model and then he said I want the pig I was like all right well there you go dude but that's what I mean by getting back to the basics of how do you request for what you want and so in this particular thing it was how to sort of break through some of that echolalia which is causing the therapist to be stuck. As you're saying that example, and I'm obviously a motor therapist, but I was working with a speech therapist with a child that has significant motor delays and he was using an assistive device to communicate. Mm -hmm. And so we were doing some ball play, ball or bubbles. We were giving choices between ball or bubbles. And well, at that time we were working with the ball and he was able to request more or stop and he would hit stop. And so she would walk and put it away. And he's like, wait a second. I still want to play ball. It's like, what? then you got to tell us the right one. That's right. <laughs> and yep. so, but he knew what he was doing and he would like kind of jokingly play a game with it. But we got to a point where we're like, okay, we're all done then. Mm-hmm. All done. So he was starting to link like, oh, what I hit is powerful. Like these people are following through with what I say. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so a lot of times kids who are with language with when they're not using, they have some ways that they communicate with others, but they're almost not really accountable, you know, to what they're saying. So you have to hold them accountable. Like this little boy with his echolalia, like do what he was saying, do don't interpret for him, which is what was happening. And then with that, that helps to get the therapist unstuck because you kind of made them accountable for what they are saying and doing, meaning like your words have power which is the whole point of it. Words have power. Then I get what I want because I said what I wanted. That helps in that way to get them unstuck. But it's going back to the basics and saying, okay, how can they communicate? And sort of getting rid of everything else and just thinking, okay, how do you ask for what you want? We use that term pause at the beginning, pause. So a lot of times, you know, we have a short amount of time in that session to kind of make something happen. But if the most important thing is the pause and the waiting and the waiting for the response and then following through with the action of whatever they said, sometimes it's just teaching that parent, you need to pause. Yep. Like as much as I'm like, oh, I need to stop and pause a second. I need to then teach that because we so want the child to be successful and we want to get through that session. And at the end, we want to have something documented to be like, they did it three times, not okay, so for next time we need to work on this, this, and this, and we got zero out of 10 still, as a therapist, it's, it can be defeating to be like, oh, I didn't get anywhere today. I think that's really key too. And then also in that sort of getting back to the basics, when you do that, you're going to have to also sort of break things down to their basic level. And I don't want to just keep repeating myself with getting back to the basics. But when you do take things back to the basics, then it causes you to start looking at each at various parts of what make up the whole. 
So for like an Arctic therapy, this happened a couple weeks ago, a therapist was like, well, he's not making progress with his sounds. And so what we did was we looked at the sounds he was doing and where he was having trouble. What can you do? What can't you do? So then we're like, okay, here's where he's having trouble. So then in the course of that, where he's having trouble, let's look up the basics. So does he have the motor plan for it? Can he get the right, you know, position for his tongue? Can he, you know, do it? And can he do it in isolation? Can he do it in a syllable? Can he do it in a word? Can he do it in a phrase, in a sentence? So then we're, we're breaking, as we do the basics, we're sort of really breaking it down each part of it. So then we can figure out where there's problems. And then we're starting there and building it back up and part of that can-do list. So that's part of going to the basics is also breaking the different things down. Definitely. An occupational therapist was working with a child and he has spastic cerebral palsy, quadriplegia. So he has a lot of extensor tone. He's got a lot of reflexes that have not integrated. He relies on his extensor tone to keep his head up. So that's how he is engaging with the world is he's kicking in all of his extension to be able to keep that head control. So if occupational therapy is want to work on reaching goals and grasp and crossing midline, well, first we have to think, okay, this child is using reflexes and using extensor tone and they're four years old now. So for four years of their life, this is the pattern that they've ingrained. So this is not a quick, easy fix. This is, I have to retrain his entire nervous system. It's not going to happen in one session. So I need to kind of take that away. This is going to take a lot of work. Okay. So let's see what his strength really is. If I can reduce the tone, because the tone is what he's using to be able to function and interact with the world. So I'm going to use just some basic NDT principles, most of which are learned in school as far as rhythmic rocking and um, relaxation strategies. So again, going back to basics, you don't need an NDT course to get to this point. You just go back to your basics. So I need to relax the tone. Got it. Relax the tone. I need to put him in a gravity minimized position because now I've taken that tone away. He's not holding up his head. So he was relying on that extensor tone to be able to maintain an upright head posture to look to engage with the world. So I'm going to take him down into a sideline position because we know that that's gravity minimized. I can't eliminate gravity, but I can at least minimize it by not having to lift his arm up against gravity. I'm putting him in that sideline position. Now can I get some reaching, some grasping, some moving my arm in a gravity minimized position to activate a switch, to put my hand on the ball for you to pop the popper? He was. He can do that. So knowing that little bit of information and one day the child, mom wanting the child to be in a power chair, I'm like, yeah, yeah, we have potential to do that. We've got some things to work on to get there, but we can get there. So then while he's laying in sideline, because we know co-treating, they have to be working on something different than I'm working on, OTPT, can't duplicate services. So she's working on reaching and grasping. That's not what I do anyway. <laughs> I'm working on the lower extremities and I'm trying to get some hip opening. So I'm using, again, some relaxation, some disassociation movement patterns to try and open those legs and open those hips. By the end of the session, he was in a beautiful ring sit. Beautiful. This child purely extends, uses extensor tone for every movement. I let the OT take him out to mom in this little tucked up ball that he's not used to being in. He was completely comfortable though, and his hips have dislocated and he's about to have hip surgery. But he's in this nice little ring sit and we give him to mom and she goes, I've never seen him like this before in my life. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But now we can work on some sitting. But that was just all like going back to basics. We didn't do anything earth shattering. We didn't use any fancy equipment. Right. Basics. Yeah. And then breaking it apart. 
And I think sometimes in the course of the, when you're going back to basics and thinking through some of that, then it also you have to tease out like when medical intervention is needed. Like I know it happens from a speech therapist perspective or from a feeding perspective. Let me give a feeding example. If I've seen a little child who's with eating and maybe they're not progressing and stuff, sometimes it can come back to as I break it down what they can do and can't do and start asking more questions. This happened probably about six months ago, but this little person I was seeing was on a medicine for reflux. And then the parent stopped giving them the medicine for reflux because, you know, you don't want to over-medicate your child. And they're like, oh, it's gotten sure. so much better. And they were on a very low dose anyway. Well, when they stopped giving it to them, it was kind of gradual what happened. But basically, the child stopped progressing. So as I was working through what they could do and what they couldn't do, part of the can and can't do, we've revealed, and as we're breaking it down, that there was a medical intervention piece that needed to happen. So they had to go back to the doctor, sort of reevaluate that reflux medication because this child was experiencing all this reflux again. And if you've ever had reflux, you don't want to eat with all that stuff because it hurts and it burns and all that stuff. So we had to get that piece back in place again. And then we started making more progress, but it happens with an ENT and speech therapy. Like, you know, gosh, this child was doing really well. And now they're breathing out of their mouth all the time. They're not breathing out of their nose. They're snoring at night. You know, they're not making any progress with their speech sounds. And you come to find out they really need to go to the ENT and look at those adenoids and tonsils and potential PE tubes. But the ENT has to make that decision. Sometimes that medical piece happens when you break it down again, too. I agree. Just for a motor example for that, we have a child that he was just in clinic the other day and the goal is for him to stand. Well, he's standing, but it's with a really, really crouched gait. So his hamstrings are considerably tight and he has gone through a growth spurt. So he has gotten a lot taller here, but the muscles are not growing with him. (laughs) And those tendons, I mean, they they are tight. So mom came in and I said, does he sleep curled up in a little ball? And she goes, he does every night. And I go in and I straighten him out and I'm like, well, it's not realistic for you to straighten him out every 15 minutes all <laughs> no, night long. <laughs> so no. um, I asked if she was on board because I told her what we were working on in therapy. And I said, are you open to getting like a night splint that he can wear either on both legs or we can alternate it between legs um, to get him a little straighter during nighttime? Because you can't go in and move him all night long. You need sleep too. So, and she was totally on board. But again, that's just going back to basics. How are we going to stand? We've gone through a major growth spurt. We still have hamstring tightness. We're not going to be able to stand up straight. How are we going to combat that? And usually children tend to sleep in the little fetal position. So that was Mm -hmm. the first question that I was like, are we sleeping balled up? Yep. Okay. <laughs> Let's tackle right. that. So again, yeah. that's just going back to basics. If we continue to work on things in therapy once or twice a week, but every night he goes home and for eight hours a night is sleeped up curled in this little ball, we're never going to win that battle. No. Mm-mm. So we got to hit the basics. Yep. So I think in this over this podcast, as you're listening, you're hearing like asking questions, reassessing all the time, not just treating what you think think you should be treating or not just treating some of the symptoms, but then continuously asking yourself to get to the heart of the issue of kind of where we are, the heart of the problem and the heart of what they can and can't do, and then adjusting the plan of care based on that, because you are working with kids that are going to change and progress and what worked two months ago might not work today and may not work two more months from now. And there's always going to be tweaks to that plan of care. And you don't want to hit an automatic pilot of Oh, this is what I do because, you know, they aren't doing categories and they need to do categories. Well, they're never going to do categories. I'm using a speech example. If they can't communicate like a sentence, then really the categories when you're on the can and can't do list, it might be on the can't do list, but is that the most important thing in the can and can't do list, you know? And so if you don't hit some of those things that come before that, who cares if they can put something into a category? 
Right. Yeah, if they can't communicate their wants and needs in a way that's functional. So that's kind of the heart of this is continuously asking questions and, and looking at what's really happening and adjusting accordingly. I think it's always important too, when you know that you've tried everything for this particular diagnosis, just in general, for example, like you know that it's pretty standard. It Maybe it's just an orthopedic issue and you've done the standard care for that diagnosis and you know that the child is not making progress or they're having relapses. My first question is, okay, they're coming in for PT once a week. Are they doing this at home? Because if they're not doing the exercises every single day and you know that to be true, no, I wouldn't expect them to get better. So you are going to be stuck because they're not making progress. So that's really important to have that follow through and have that understanding with the parent that once a week here is not going to do it. Which is the one thing we didn't mention with this. In the course of making up the list of what they can and can't do, we talked about talking to other therapists. We talked about talking to the parent. But you have to always reassess your home program with the parent, just like what you were saying, and check in with the parent and make sure that your can and can't do list is accurate with them and what you're working on is most important for the home or the situations that may have be happening in the home. Definitely. That's part of that, asking questions and figuring out what they can and can't do and going to the basics. You can't do it without the whole people at the house or school or whatever it is. The most important thing too is when you feel stuck and you're not making the progress that you would expect or you think you're not getting anywhere, before you jump to the conclusion, well, okay, they have to be discharged. <laughs> before right. you go there, I think it's again really important to get somebody else's eyes on this child. We do hear that a lot. Oh, I think they're ready for discharge. Are they? Are they really? Well, I heard it this week. I think he's ready to discharge because he's just not making progress. He's never going to tie his shoes. He's just not making any progress. And so I'm like, well, before you discharge, let's think about what we can do, what we can't do. And maybe he isn't going to tie his shoes, but what's going to happen to him when he isn't in high school anymore? We got to think about it right now and longer and what he can and can't do. So I think it's a, it could be a discharge situation. Maybe he doesn't need us right now, but it might not be. But I would challenge that a little bit and say, okay, mm -hmm. mom, is it really important that he tie his shoes, laces, or can we look at some other options? Maybe mm -hmm. not Velcro, but there is a, I like shoes. I'm a PT. I kind of, mm -hmm. That's another nerdy thing. I like, I'm like, oh, what brand are those? I've never seen those before. I like shoes. <laughs> um, so I, I like the different laces. I like the options. There's one kiddo that we see in one of our clinics that I have never seen the way that these shoes go together before. And I'm all about it. So I'm like, oh, have we explored all the ways to put on shoes? Do, does mm -hmm. he have to tie? And if not, can we do some other options and work on that? And have the parents really started thinking about what's going to happen later? Because is tying the shoes the most, the biggest thing? But, you know, just because they're not making progress, but they've still got a bunch of needs, it, it, I just would say just because you're frustrated and you're thinking, oh, they're not making any progress. I'm frustrated in this situation. I don't know that that's a reason to discharge. I think you got to go back to your basics first. Hayden, I think too, like working here at PDT, we're going to challenge you to think along those lines because, I mean, if we weren't challenging the therapist, then really what are we doing here? So I think it's important to have people challenge you. Mm -hmm. I do. I think it's how you grow as a therapist and really learn to expand and think outside the box too. As long as it's done in a positive way to, to help sure. um, build you up, which is what you're saying. We're trying to help people get better, ourselves and everybody else. That's what we do. It can be a little frustrating to be challenged, but as you better understand it or as you see things that maybe you weren't open to before and you expand a little bit, 
I think you become more open to the challenges. Just like we said, that that's where growth happens for you as a therapist. And ultimately that child gets a little bit better at something, maybe not shoe tying, mm-hmm. but in a different way. So as we kind of wrap this up, Kirsty, we started this thing off by talking about a pause. If you feel like you're stuck, how to get unstuck is to pause, take a step back. But a lot of times we don't want to do that because sometimes in that pausing, it may make us look like we don't know what we're doing. But you do know what you're doing. (laughs) Sometimes you have to just go back to those basics. And if you keep doing the same thing and it's not working and you're not making progress, ultimately that child's not getting any better. And so go back to basics, ask the questions, ask for help. You will see a difference. Exactly. A hundred percent. Well, there's a quote from Mozart. It says, the music is not in the notes. It's in the silence between. So there's that pause, you know, that pause in between. And we're not talking like sit and meditate. <laughs> Lord knows I can't, um, I can barely stay quiet for two seconds. I'm the worst at meditation, but it is in that pause and wait and just to look and see. So it's just in the thinking in between and the reassessment. You know, and the observation, it's observing what's happening. It's observing the response. There you go. If you're stuck, hopefully this podcast has helped you get unstuck or given you some ideas to get unstuck. The little people you see are counting on you. And like Kirsty said, you do know what you're doing. So you will get the answer. But hopefully some of these ideas we talked about and some of the little examples will help help you take the next step in getting unstuck. So thank you for joining us today, and we'll check you next time on another episode of The Working Therapist. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Working Therapist, an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. If you would like more information regarding this podcast or would like to get in touch with us for any reason, visit us on the web at www.pediatricdt.com. That's pediatricdt.com. 